Open your Bibles to uh, Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 9 this morning. Look at verses 18 to 26 of Matthew 9. But before we get there, I want, to, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. And I want to look at Matthew 11 verses 2 to 6 here as we begin. Uh, John the Baptist, the man who was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, he was in prison, and he is the one that pointed the nation to Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. He had testified that Jesus was the Messiah, and he had said that he was not worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. He said that Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus was the one who would ultimately judge the world. This John, this same man, began to wonder if Jesus was the one to come. He began to doubt if Jesus was the Messiah. Perhaps John was expecting a more literal fulfillment of Isaiah 61 verse 1. Isaiah 61 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord, that is Yahweh, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And maybe John thought, if this were the Messiah, he would have proclaimed my liberty and the opening of my prison. And so he begins to doubt. Look at Matthew 11, starting at verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus pointed to his deeds as proof that he was the one to come. Some of what Jesus says there points, or what he points to is quoted from Isaiah 61.1, which we just read, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now the first bit that Jesus says in Matthew 11 and verse 5, that's quoted from Isaiah 35.5, which says this, it says, the, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 were both well-known messianic prophecies. And so Jesus is saying, look at what I'm doing. I'm fulfilling the testimony about me. Blessed are you, John, if you're not offended by me. Jesus didn't just do miracles for the sake of doing miracles. His miracles were evidence that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. All of his miracles show that he has the power and the authority to bring kingdom-like conditions. The Old Testament had promised that the Messiah would reign from the throne of David over a renewed earth, that there would be righteousness and peace and prosperity, that the, the time of this reign would include long life, physical health, and salvation. Jesus' miracles show that He has the power to bring that about, that He has the power to bring in the kingdom. But nothing shows this more than Jesus' power over death. 
The kingdom promises of the Old Testament spoke of a reign of the Messiah forever. For example, Isaiah 9-6, which we often read at this time of the year, it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so we could ask, well, how would this ruler uphold David's throne and, and his kingdom forever? How would he do that from this time forth and forevermore? And of course, the answer is, is that he would have to overcome death. He would have to overcome his own death. And then to be our savior, he would need to overcome our death. Now, we almost get used to hearing about Jesus' miracles, but we shouldn't miss how amazing this eyewitness testimony is that, that Jesus points to. Look, at, look again at verse 4. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus is pointing and he's saying, look at, look at what these, it's like those guys had just come and seen all of these things happen. And he says, go tell John what you just saw and heard this afternoon. The disciples of John heard and they saw these things. They were eyewitnesses. And Matthew himself saw these things. And then through Matthew, by the power of the spirit inspired word, we can see and hear these things in the word of God. But nothing of all of these things that Jesus did tops that little clause in the middle of verse 5. Look at it again. The dead are raised up. Jesus showed that he has authority over death. And death is our great problem. The satanic world system that we live in that tries to make us forget about death. But we are all going to die. Unless the Lord returns first, 100% of people who are alive today will die. And Scripture talks about two deaths. The first death is physical death. Our bodies will be separated from our souls. We die physically. This is the first death. In the first death, the souls of believers ascend to the presence of the Lord, and the souls of unbelievers go to a place of judgment called Hades or, or Hades. And I kind of switch back and forth in my pronunciation of that for some reason, but Hades or Hades. Hades is a place of punishment for sin. And our clearest view of Hades is in Luke 16 in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It says this, 16.22 of Luke, the, the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. If Jesus hadn't conquered death, we would all have gone to this place of torment. A place where there's not the least possibility of mercy. Not even a drop of water on the end of a finger to cool off the tongue that's in torment in the flames. 
But the second death is even worse. And why don't we turn there? Look at Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, we could start at verse 12. John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Just before that, in verse 5, it said this, and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And so the idea here is that there's a resurrection of everyone, the dead, everyone who is dead, everyone who has ever died, who is in death and Hades, whether they died in the sea or wherever they died, they were all resurrected and came to this place of, of judgment and they were cast into the lake of fire resurrected. In John chapter 5, 28 and 29, Jesus talks about a resurrection of those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In 1 Corinthians 15:26 it's called death is called the last enemy. See, we are all going to die. And the only escape from death is through the Lord Jesus Christ. We needed a savior who could overcome death and that's exactly what we have in Jesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 8 to 10 Paul says this, he says therefore Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, and get this last phrase, phrase, who abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, nobody ever, nobody else ever abolished death. Nobody else brought life and immortality to light. There is no other savior from this enemy called death. And our text this morning gives us our first glimpse of Jesus' power in this area. Jesus raised a dead girl to life. She was dead, and He brought her back to life. He brought her back. This is the greatest miracle of all the miracles that we've seen so far. I think the only greater miracle of all the miracles is is the miracle of Jesus' own resurrection because unlike this little girl who's going to be resurrected in our text this morning, Jesus was resurrected never to die again as we will be resurrected never to die again in the new heaven and the new earth. So let's see Jesus' power over death. If you haven't already, turn back to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, verse 18. Let's read our, our text this morning. It says, 
And while he was saying, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came, a ruler came in and, and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and fo- rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, for your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. This story is the first miracle account of of the third set of three miracles, remember there's, there's three sets of three miracles in this section. Matthew 8 began with three miracles that were directed towards outsiders. A leper was healed with a touch. A Gentile centurion servant was healed from a distance. And Peter's mother-in-law was healed as well. And then we saw Jesus call to follow him across the lake, and that was a, a call to discipleship. Then the second set of three began in Matthew 8.23 and Jesus rebuked the wind and the sea and a great storm was calmed. Then he cast out demons from two demon-possessed men and then third, he, he forgave and healed a paralytic. Jesus has authority then in those first two sets over nature, over demons, over sin, and over sickness. And then we had two more discipleship narratives, the call of Matthew followed by questions from the Pharisees and John's disciples. And then our text begins the third set of three miracles. This story is a a two-in-one miracle account, two miracles, one story. And then second, we're going to see Jesus heals two blind men. And then third, he heals a demon-oppressed mute man. And so what we see is that in these few chapters, everything leading up to what Jesus says in Matthew 11 has occurred. And so all of the, the things that Jesus tells John to look to as signs that he's the Messiah have been fulfilled in this section, Matthew 8 and 9, where, where Matthew really groups almost all of the miracles that we're going to see that Jesus does. There's a few other miracles kind of scattered throughout Matthew, but really this is the, the concentration of miracles is right here. Matthew grouped these miracles together to show us the remarkable authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority to command demons. Jesus has authority over nature to control nature. He has authority to cure sickness. He has authority to correct vision. He has the authority to loose tongues. And he has the authority to reverse death itself. And seeing this then, as as we see this, Matthew wants us to worship Jesus Christ and to become his disciples and follow him. Now it's interesting here that this miracle, the, the raising of the dead girl, isn't placed last. Because without a doubt, it's the preeminent miracle of, of all of these miracles. And so we kind of wonder, well, why does Matthew not put this one at the end? 
And it seems to me, at least, that this one is placed here because he wants us to notice the growing hostility towards Jesus that really emerges again in the last two accounts. Very simple outline for us this morning as we look at this text. We're just going to follow the three scenes that Matthew presents. We're going to see the astounding request of the Father in verses 18 and 19. We're going to see the interrupting touch of the woman in verses 20 to 22, and then the restoring grasp of Jesus in verses 23 to 26. So the astounding request, the interrupting touch, the restoring grasp. And this text, again, as we think about what is what should we get out of this morning, this text should cause us to marvel at our Lord Jesus Christ, who has power over uncurable sickness and even over death itself. And if there was ever a time that we needed to know Christ in this way, I would say it's now. And I don't say that so much because there's an incurable sickness going around causing death. It's more that that fear of such thing has captured our world in this time. Our generation, I think more than maybe any other generation that I'm aware of, has forgotten that everyone will die of something. And that we can't control death. We have no power over death. We can't control it ultimately. But we know one who does have power over death. We know one who does have the control of death in his hands. Jesus has authority over sickness and he has authority over death. And he has the power to deliver us from death and sickness. And ultimately, even more importantly, he has the power to deliver us from the wrath of God. And knowing this should cause us great comfort in this world of sickness and death. Knowing the Lord Jesus in this way should give us a, a great assurance as we live in this world for His honor and glory. And so let's see, first of all, look at verses 18 and 19. This is the astounding request. The astounding request. And we see in verses 18 and 19, what, what might be one of the greatest expressions of faith in all of the gospels. It's really, you know, underlighted. It's not, it's not highlighted really at all, but the, the, the faith of this man is really astounding. This ruler believes that Jesus can make his daughter who just died live again. Look at verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now Matthew has once again here given us the, the most concise version of the story. Matthew has nine verses in this whole, um, in this whole story. Luke has 17 verses. Mark has 32 verses and, and the verses are, are relatively the same length. So nine compared to 17 or, or 32 verses in Mark. From Mark and Luke, we learn a little bit more. We learn that this ruler was a ruler of the synagogue, that he would have been a, an important man in Capernaum. He would have been a, a high-ranking official. He probably would have been a wealthy man. We learn from Mark and Luke as well that his name was Jairus. His daughter was his only daughter, and she was 12 years old. Mark and Luke also tell us that the daughter died while Jesus was on the way to her, but Matthew kind of shortens the whole thing up and he just gives us, like he seems to always do, just the very least we need to know to understand that Jesus healed this woman and that he raised this little girl to life. 
And so Jairus came and he knelt before Jesus. Now earlier, we've seen this word translated here, knelt before, and, and it was translated, in those contexts, it was translated worshipped. Like when the wise men came to worship the one born king of the Jews in Matthew 2.2, that same word was used there. Or in Matthew 2.11, about these wise men, it says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. There's that same word. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Satan also asked Jesus to worship him using that same word in Matthew 4, 9 and 10. Now it's debatable here whether Jairus bowed low in respect or whether he bowed to worship Jesus, but he did believe that Jesus could make his daughter live. Now, how he came to that conclusion, we don't know. Jesus has healed many, but he he hasn't raised anyone from the dead at this point. Again, he said to Jesus, verse 19, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. He has come to believe that Jesus could do this thing. And Jesus is entirely willing to do it as well. Verse 19, And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Jesus is going to go and lay his hand on this man's daughter to raise her from the dead. And that's the astounding request. It's a request of great faith. This Jairus believed that his daughter will live. He believed that she would live if only Jesus comes and lays his hand on her. He not only believed that Jesus could, he believed that Jesus would. He believed and he came to Jesus. And that's really the essence of true faith, to believe that Jesus can, to believe that he is willing to do so, and then to come to him and make a request of him. But on the way, Jesus was interrupted by a woman. And this interruption kind of heightens the tension in the story. The reader, you know, you want to find out if what the ruler believed is going to happen. You're kind of, is, is, is Jesus going to raise this person from the dead? But we have to wait now because we have the interrupting touch. And this intervening healing that we see here is remarkable in itself. And so all the gospel writers include this. This is the, the interrupting touch, verses number two in our outline, verses 20 to 22. Look at verse 20, it says, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him. And we'll just stop there for now. This woman has suffered for as long as the little girl was alive. She suffered the entire lifespan of this little girl. And she had some kind of a hemorrhage, some kind of unending flow of blood. And this condition would have made her unclean. Leviticus 15, 19 to 33 talks about such a condition. Basically, the woman was unclean. Anything that she sat or lied on was unclean. And if anyone touched one of those things or if anyone touched the woman herself, they would be unclean until the day after they had a bath. They were to have a bath and then the next morning they would be declared clean again. Now to be unclean for this woman and and really for anyone who was unclean meant that they were isolated or removed from society. You couldn't attend worship at the local synagogue or at the temple if you were unclean. 
And so this woman would have been very much like the leper that Jesus healed in chapter 8. Very similar condition to the to leprosy and, and the way that it would have been regarded. She would have been kind of looked down upon as an unclean woman, maybe even as a woman who was in some way being punished for her sin. And she was separated from society. She was isolated. It would have been a very sad case indeed for this woman to be totally isolated from society. Mark 5.26 tells us that she had suffered much under many physicians. She had suffered much under many physicians. And there's a, there's a lot in there in just that little statement though, but she would have suffered all kinds of, of weird and, and cruel treatments at the hands of these physicians. Also, it goes on to say, and she had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And so she spent all her money with, to these physicians, suffered from the treatments that they gave her, and she wasn't any better at all, but she was actually worse from it. Luke 8.43 says, though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So this woman had an uncurable and incurable condition, and she was separated from society because of it. Look at verse 20. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she has said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. She got the idea somehow that, that if she merely touched Jesus' cloak, she would be made well. Now remember, there's a crowd surrounding Jesus at this time. And both Mark and Luke tell us about the, the crowd that was pressing Jesus. They were, they were really all around him, pressing him on every side. And the woman thought that she would, she would just sneak up behind Jesus and, and just touch the edge of his garment. And it seems that she took this approach because if, if she would have come any other way, she would have had to make a scene. She, she might have had to yell from a distance that she was unclean and she would have had to call out like we're going to see the blind men calling out to Jesus in the next miracle story. She was unclean and so she would have, she would have had to almost clear the crowd and announce that she was unclean. And I can imagine that, that many of you ladies would feel the same way about the situation, about bringing the attention of the crowd on you, especially in circumstances like those. What should she do? She thought. She said to herself, I'll just, I'll sneak through the crowd. I'll, I'll come up behind him and I'll, I'll just touch the edge of his garment. Verse 21 begins there for she, she said to herself, and, and that might be better translated. She was saying to herself. There's kind of a, an ongoing action happening there. And she's, she's repeating this in her mind as she makes her way through the crowd. If only I touch his garment, I'll be made well. If, if only I touch his garment, I'll be made well. If only I touch his garment. And of course, as she's pressing through the crowd, she's, she probably knows in her mind that she's making the people unclean, that she's doing something that she shouldn't do, but she's going, if I just, if I just touch his garment, it's all going to be okay. And you can almost feel her anxiety when you, when you picture the scene. It had been 12 years probably since this woman had been in a crowd. And she made her way through that crowd and she touched the fringe of his garment, likely the, the tassels that hung from the four corners of a, of a Jewish cloak. Now her belief that merely touching Jesus' garment would make her well is, is kind of a superstitious belief if you think about it. 
She almost thinks that Jesus is a magician, and if she if she just touches his cloak, then then the healing power in him will will come out and and heal her. Literally, when when she says in verse twenty one, "I will be made well," we could translate it, "I will be saved." Matthew doesn't use the word "saved" for healings like Mark and Luke do, but except for in this one place, verse twenty one as well. Two times it says. Uh, made well uh, in ver- two times in verse 22 means means more than physical healing here it means literally to be saved and she was i think i think we can argue from this that she was both physically healed and spiritually saved in this moment when she touched the hem of his garment or the the tassels of his garment she was immediately healed mark puts it like this this is mark 527 She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately the flow of blood dried up and immediately she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus now turns and he lets her know that she was healed, not, not by her superstitious belief, but by faith. And so look at verse 22. Jesus turned. So she touches him. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, be encouraged, take comfort, take heart, daughter, for your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. And instantly the woman was saved or the woman was made well. Where it says there, instantly the woman was made well, it sounds like, or it could sound like, she was healed when Jesus said that. But in reality, Jesus Jesus is explaining what had happened to her. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Past tense. Something that happened before. It's more literally there. And the woman was saved from that very hour. From that encounter with Jesus onward, she was saved again both physically and spiritually she believed jesus she came to him she was healed she was saved that was the interrupting touch now let's see number three let's look at the restoring grasp in verses 23 to 26 and here we come back to the main story jesus is on his way to heal and raise a little girl from the dead And he's going to restore her to life with a touch. And so we called it the restoring grasp. Verse 23, And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away. Now we'll we'll stop there. He said, Go away. And to our ears, it, it sounds, or it might seem, almost harsh. You know, even even if Jesus was about to raise the girl from the dead, you know, we, we probably wouldn't say go away. We wouldn't, we, we wouldn't tell mourners at a funeral, go away. But we also wouldn't do a lot of things like they did it there. There's a, there's a huge cultural difference that's happening in this moment. We wouldn't hire flute players and mourning women to help us grieve either, would we? We, that's just not what we normally do. Jewish tradition said that even the poorest family should hire not less than two flute players 
and one mourning woman or one wailing woman. They didn't, you know, we, we, at our funerals, we quietly whisper to one another in hushed tones, right? And, and we don't want to make too much noise or, or, you know, kind of even make a scene or draw any attention to ourselves. We, we kind of quietly whisper. That's not the way that they did it at all. They wailed. They, they, they wailed. They sobbed. They mourned. There was a, it was a very vocal and, and emotional and, and outward kind of grief. I think like we call it like an ugly cry. I think they were all doing the ugly cry, wailing and, 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 and weeping and, and they hired professional mourners to come and break the ice to kind of pave the way. And they would, as they mourned and wailed, and I, you know, I'm tempted to almost like give it a try, but I, I don't, I didn't practice it. So I'm just going to try to refrain, but they, they would, they would have these, these professional mourners wailing there and they would, they would remember the names of aunts and uncles and friends who also died previously. And so they would kind of bring to mind all the grief and, and they, and everyone was wailing. And if this man was the ruler of the synagogue, he would have likely had the, the best professional mourners available. Now, I don't know how the, the hiring of this process went, but you only had 24 hours to to kind of organize this thing. Bodies were buried within 24 hours. And so I don't know if mourners and flute players just showed up and you just paid them later or how that worked. But, you know, to us, it seems very strange, but they would think, what is wrong with you guys if they came to one of our funerals too? And so that's just the way that they grieved. Jairus hadn't even returned yet and the mourners were already there wailing. And of course, neighbors and family would have been joining in as they got the word and as they arrived, they would see the mourners and the flute players and they would, they would join in the grief as well. The fact that the girl was so young would have added to the grief. A 12-year-old girl has just died and, and there, there was a, a commotion going on, but the commotion would have largely been from the wailing women and the flute players and the professional mourners. And Jesus told them to go away. They, their services would no longer be needed. Verse 24, look at that again. And he, Jesus said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping, and they laughed at him. Jesus arrives on the scene. He, he hasn't seen the girl yet, and he says, she's not dead, but sleeping. Now they have seen her, and they know that she is dead, and so they, they laughed at him. They ridiculed him. This word ridiculed or, or laughed, it's only used in this story. It's used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the idea is they, they mocked him. They, it's a, a scornful, kind of superior laugh. They, they look down on him, believing uh, that he has arrived too late and that, that he can do nothing. And so they, they kind of scorn him and, and, and they, they laugh at him and they think they're better than him and they know more than him. And, and the, the fact that they could go from, from wailing to mocking so quickly, I think shows that they were hired mourners just doing their job. But when Jesus says she's not dead, he doesn't mean that literally, right? She's not dead. He doesn't mean she's not dead. She's dead. Matthew didn't understand this literally either. You know, one commentator said, just to kind of think about this, if you think about it, this is not a story about Jesus waking up a girl from an afternoon nap, right? I think we all, we all get that. 
Matthew includes this as a significant miracle. Word of this raising went through all the district in verse 26. Not because she was sleeping, but because she was dead. This is a, an important story because she was dead. The story began in verse 18 with the father's words, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And so we ask, well, what does Jesus mean then when he says, go away for the girl is not sleeping or is not dead, but sleeping? It seems to mean that her death is not final, that, that she can rise out of it, that he can raise her out of it. And if you think about it, for us as well, death is not final in any case. We live forever in, in heaven or hell, but we will live forever. Death as we know it is, is in a way it's like a sleep and that we will be resurrected. Our bodies and our souls are separated in death, but they will be reunited in the resurrection. And so Jesus is saying that this is not final. It's like a sleep. Verse 25 again, but when the crowd had been put outside, he went in. Mark tells us that, that Peter, James, and John, as, as well as the man's, or, or the, the man's, the, the, the man, Jairus, and, and his wife were there, mom and dad were there, and they, they all went in with Jesus. Everyone else was, was kicked out. Everyone else was thrown out, but Peter, James, John, mom and dad, along with the little girl. Again, verse 25, when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. Jesus took her by the hand and the girl arose. This is probably the most understated resurrection story ever told. Jesus overcame death. He conquered death. Almost like it was simply waking up a girl from a nap. Just He came in, took her by the hand, rose up. That same word is used to raise someone from a nap too. It's just the the word to mean to, to, to make somebody arise. Now this is not the only resurrection recorded in Scripture. In 1 Kings 17, 19-23, Elijah prays. In verse 21, he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the child was raised to life. 1 Kings 17. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha prayed and raised a a child from the dead as well. And the, the child was raised from the dead according to Elisha's prayer. In Acts chapter 9, Peter raised Tabitha from the dead. Acts 9.40 says, But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when Peter, when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and, and widows, he presented her alive. And so Peter rose somebody from the dead, raised somebody from the dead. In Acts chapter 20, Paul raised somebody from the dead. Uh, one of my favorite stories. And on that first day of the week when they were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to d- depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep. And as Paul as Paul talked still longer... And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and 
broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. And so Paul raised a young man from the dead as well. But the difference between these resurrections in Scripture and what Jesus did is that what Jesus is doing, He is doing by His own power and authority. We don't come away from these other accounts thinking of Paul's greatness or of Peter's power. What they did, the Lord did through them. But with Jesus, we're meant to know that He Himself is the explanation of His mighty deeds. He doesn't pray to the Father. He takes the girl and raises her Himself. It's not so much that Jesus what he did what He did because God was with Him. It's more like He did what He did to show that He is God. And this text is meant to make us marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the keys of death and hades. Revelation 1.17, He says, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and hades. When these other resurrections happened in Scripture, those people would have died again. But when Jesus rose from the dead, He rose never to die again. And when we, when He raises us from the dead, we will never die again after that either. And so we've seen then the astonishing request and the interrupting touch and the, the restoring grasp. And now we just want to ask, well, what should we do with this? How should we respond to this story? Matthew and the Holy Spirit through Matthew would have us worship Jesus Christ as we see these miracles. Our Savior has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Death could not hold Him. Death could not conquer Him. By His death, He killed death and He overcame death for us. Jesus died and rose again, never to die again. He's alive today and sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high like we read in Hebrews. We should respond with worship. We should respond with love for Christ. Here is one who can save us from death and hell. Here is one who saved an unclean woman. Surely he will save whoever comes to him. He promises to do so. He promises to save all who will come as she came. She believed and she came to him. And that's what we are to do, to believe in his power and in his person and come to him. Physical healing was mostly done to point us to Christ who can save us from our sins and from the wrath of God. And now that we've been directed to our true spiritual need, physical, the physical pointers have been removed. And so we're not to come to Him necessarily for healing or for sickness or, or even to recover from, from this death. We're to come to Him to recover from the second death, which is what He came to do to save us from our sins. And so how should we respond? We should worship Christ. We should love such a great and powerful Savior. We should come to Him and take up our cross and follow Him. What else? We should trust Him. We should trust Him. He's our, He's sovereign over life and death. He's at the right hand of God. All authority is His on, in heaven and on earth. We need to entrust our sickness and our death to Him. We need to entrust our loved ones to Him. 
We need to entrust ourselves to Him. And so we're going to sing in response here, in Christ alone. And the song talks about the, the greatness of Christ, about standing in the love of Christ. He is our Savior who loved us. It talks about living in the death of Christ, the one who died for our sins. It talks about being purchased with the blood of Christ and standing in the power of Christ. And so we're going to sing it as worship to our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just pray as we do. Father, we, we thank You that that we've been able to look at this passage and see the power and authority of Christ even over death itself. We thank You for what He accomplished by His death and that our Savior conquered death. And we pray now that You would help us to sing the glories of our Savior Jesus Christ even in a way that we haven't before. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.